Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond, and today I'm joined by Melissa edmondson McCalla. We're going to be talking about her book, Women's Close Literature in 19th Century Britain. Thank you for joining us, Melissa. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Please tell us a bit about yourself and your career so far, and what made you want to write about a niche subject like women's ghost literature, and why that particular time period? Sure. Um, I became interested in this topic while I was completing my graduate degree in 19th century British literature. And as I read these stories, I was really shocked to find that almost nothing had been written extensively on this topic. And the more that I read by these women, uh, the more I realized how good their writing was. And I think the strong social component to my research comes from my background in both literature and history. Um, a little background from my undergraduate, I double majored in English and history. So I've, I've always had this love of history. And, you know, literature is history. So uh, I like to think of myself as a, you know, literary historian, yes, analyzing these works, but also sort of rescuing these women from obscurity. So the detective work of finding more about these women is, is really appealing to me. And I guess as far as the, the subject matter, you know, yeah, it is sort of um, sort of different, but it's incredibly fun and never boring. So <laughs> that's always a good thing. Um, I've heard about so many people sort of getting tired and bored of their research, but I don't think that's ever going to happen, hopefully to me. Um, but also a part of the appeal for me is how these stories really challenge typical notions of the stereotypical sort of prim and proper Victorian women writer, um, or just how these women in general were, were viewed during the majority of the 19th century, uh, and how they, they show women tackling some really tough, controversial subjects in their writing. Uh, and then you add the supernatural element, and again, many scholars still don't take Gothic too seriously, um, that's changed a lot in recent years, but I think the attitude is, is still there a lot of the time. Uh, so finding these strong social elements in these stories, like the social supernatural, as I call it, uh, again, makes these stories something more than just light entertainment. Uh, you know, yes, they were written to entertain, but they also had an important purpose. So obviously a lot of people know about Gothic literature, but you make the distinction in your book about male Gothic and female Gothic. So can you explain the difference between these two subgenres and whether you think such a division actually helps in critical analysis of something like the ghost story? Yeah, um, at the beginning of my research into this topic, I tried to maintain the, the male gothic, female gothic dichotomy. But as I read more and more ghost stories by women, I'm not so sure how well these terms hold up uh, when we get further into the 19th century. Uh, male Gothic usually relies on, a, of course, you know, male point of view, um, uses really graphic descriptions of suffering, especially women's suffering, uh, in a very voyeuristic, erotic way. It also relies on the unexplained supernatural, which means, you know, just like it sounds, but it's the supernatural activity that's not explained. Uh, within the, the narrative of the story that it remains, you know, unexplained at the end. I'm trying to think a good example would be M.G. Lewis's The, uh, the Monk uh, with its the wicked monk Ambrosio, and, and he goes around doing all these awful things to women throughout the novel. So on the other hand, the female Gothic is largely described by critics 
uh, with the novels, like the 18th century novels of Anne Radcliffe in mind. So we usually have, like, in these, you know, these types of novels, this seemingly defenseless heroine, uh, absent mothers, morally ambiguous fathers, um, a lot of feigning, so much feigning. (laughs) (laughs) Too much feigning, in my opinion. Um, Usually it ends in a happy marriage, and it relies on the explained supernatural, which just, again, means the supernatural is explained away, usually by some natural means or whatever by the end of the narrative. So women's ghost stories from the 19th century, I think complicate all these, you know, quote unquote rules because you have women relying more on graphic descriptions of violence, uh, not just to revel in female victimhood, but, you know, to critique it almost um, like all of these stories make use of the unexplained supernatural too. I can't really, you know, off the top of my head, I can't even really think of one that, that really doesn't do that. But uh, women, especially later in the 19th and 20th centuries also are not fans of the happy ending, which personally is another reason why I love these stories. I don't know what that says about me, (laughs) but um, I, I love that they, they're, they're, you know, they're daring enough to do that. They are certainly not afraid to leave their readers with a a tragedy, a death, some sort of troubling ending that really unsettles you and makes you question things. Um, You know, it's like the, the hauntings are often not resolved in these stories. And then I guess um, just quickly, when we get into the the early 20th century, which I don't get into too much with the book, but um, we have writers like Violet Hunt and Marjorie Lawrence and Marjorie Bowen and Eleanor Scott, um, who are really pushing the boundaries of, again, this quote-unquote polite earlier concept of this female gothic that Anne Radcliffe used. And I don't, I just, I'm getting to where I prefer the more general term women's gothic, um, and in my latest book, I, I purposefully tried to avoid the use of female gothic as much as possible. So I think it has its uses, but also has its limitations, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting you talk about um, not relying on the explained supernatural and not having happy endings. And one of the things I found quite interesting later on in your book is how you say that because of these elements... Um, and also because of, sort of the analytical critique, there were a lot of bad reviews almost of these short stories at the time because a lot of people, a lot of reviewers who, I face it, are probably men, just didn't mm-hmm. quite get it. And they were comparing it to the likes of, say, Charles Dickens. Um, and it's, you know, it's very different and they have very different aims in mind and they didn't quite appreciate it for the time. Whereas now we can look back on it and go, actually, it reflects very interesting um, social anxieties of the time. I think it's so modern. You know, these stories are maybe a little bit too, they were of their time, but I think they were also ahead of their time. Well, they they were critiquing things that others weren't really dealing with. I mean, in your last last chapter of your book, which we'll get onto in time, uh, you talk about sort of, uh, stories about the empire the british empire and you au- almost automatically think of people like uh, rudyard kipling but there were actually a lot of women who were critiquing it but doing it in such a way that it didn't look like it was critiquing it and mm-hmm. sort of making social commentary on on the empire but right. i mean we've talked about obviously um comparing them with guys um so how easy was it to find the research sources and the original stories for such female writing compared to for example trying to track down mr james sheridan lefano or charles dickens whose works were all very widely available yeah to be honest it was pretty difficult um especially at the beginning when i started this um this project 
when I started researching, you know, over 10 years ago now, there were a few books discussing women's gothic, mainly novels. I mean, like, um, you know, the Bronte sisters, um, you know, definitely Mary Shelley. Those types of things tend to get focused on a little bit more, and, and rightly so. You know, they're great. But um, not many books that you know, focus on women's use of the supernatural and ghosts in particular, um, and especially ones that focused on short fiction are still sort of hard to come by. Um, the only one which came close is um, one I would recommend, Vanessa Dickerson's Victorian Ghosts in the Noontide, which is a groundbreaking book on women's supernatural, but she approaches ghosts more... I guess, figuratively than I do and tends to focus on novels. Um, she also focuses on how living women can be specters based on their marginal position within society. Uh, whereas in my work, I focus on literal ghosts, you know, dead people who come back um, and what that says about women's position within society. Uh, but the lack of sources was, I guess, good in a way because I had this wide area that almost no one had written about. So I often had to look at sources discussing male writers, like you said, you know, with James and Lefanu and, and Dickens, and then relate it to my topic by saying, you know, something like, this may be true for the supernatural fiction written by James, but if we apply this theory to women's writing, it gets more complicated. Um, and there's still so much, especially biographically, that is not known about these women. So there were gaps that just couldn't be filled. You know, I'm just waiting for, you know, maybe I can find some of it, just waiting for people to find out more. Um, so I, in those cases, I try not to conjecture too much. For instance, we know very little about Anne Bannerman, um, the romantic poet who's discussed in the, the first chapter of the book. We don't even know where she's buried. Um, so I remember being in the British Library and looking at this one extant letter from her and thinking how you know precious this document is. It's like all we have that, that is hers. So uh, within the last few years, though, people have... I would say really started to pay more attention to women's supernatural writing. Uh, one book that comes to mind is um, Dara Downey's American Women's Ghost Stories in the Gilded Age. It was just published a few years ago. Uh, that's one I would really recommend. So, you know, I think the tide is turning a little bit more at this point. Well, I totally agree. I mean, one of my friends on Facebook, um, a gentleman I've been to several conventions with, uh, Mr. Johnny Maines, has just done a suggestion of ghosts. And um, mm. it's an excellent book. And I think it was featured in um, a Guardian article where you also um, featured. I think that's how I made the connection between the two. And, and that's so brilliant because it's got all these fantastic ghost stories by women. And they are just so refreshingly different to what you're used to of the time. And like you say, I know that Johnny is constantly posting, oh, I found another story and oh, I've got one that's never been seen before or republished. And it's just, you know, amazing what you can find when you actually start digging down. Yeah, I may get in trouble for saying this, but he actually has another volume coming out that <gasps> I'm going to write the introduction for. So I'm excited about that. Excellent. Um, but he's found and he said, you know, even with the second volume, he has so many more that he could include, you know. It's absolutely. I mean, it's actually surprising how much was published by women writers in the 19th century. Um, I mean, Charlotte Riddell, Mary Louisa Molesworth and Margaret Oliphant were all making good money through their ghost stories. And you even mentioned that Ellen Wood uh, bought the Argosy magazine and ran it as the editor. 
And that's not the sort of women we're used to hearing about from that era. So what prompted women to write in that time? Um, So where were they published and how were they received? Right. Well, many women did earn a living publishing their stories in popular 19th century journals and magazines, you know, just like men. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, Rosa Mulholland, um, Amelia B. Edwards comes to mind. And they, they regularly contributed to Charles Dickens. I would mention him, his household words and all the year round. Uh, so they were regular contributors for those types of publications. Uh, but they often had to support themselves and their families through writing just to, you know, put food on the table, uh, put a roof over their heads. So, uh, for instance, you mentioned uh, Charlotte Riddell. She spent her entire life paying her husband's debts. And despite writing, I think it was over 50 books, she died in poverty. And I just find that, you know, incredibly sad. Mary Elizabeth Braddon, um, she's best known probably for Lady Audley's Secret, you know, the great sensation novel. Um, she published quite a few supernatural stories, too, and she had to support herself, um, her eventual husband, and numerous children and stepchildren through writing. Um, she also worked as an editor, so it's just amazing how many women were editors during the time, too. You mentioned, um, I think earlier, Margaret Oliphant, and she... Also turned to writing as a career um, in order to support herself, and she had seven children. Um, and after her husband, um, he sort of failed in his career as an artist. And I think, if I have it right, I think he died around 1859, and she lived until you know the end of the century. So that was a long time for her to have to support herself. But I don't know. This just fascinates me because these women were taking care of business, you know, in all ways. I mean, they were raising children, they were running businesses, they were writing, you know, all while also, you know, putting out some really good supernatural fiction. But I think also because women were often more, you know, quote unquote, popular writers, um, they, they sold just as much, if not more than men a lot of the time. They, they needed to make money, yes, by their writing, But I think for this reason, that's why their work was so discounted as sort of not being worthy of serious study, especially by 20th century scholars. Um, You know, they came to be known as hack writers who who didn't care about anything other than earning money. But, you know, so many women learned how to work the publishing system to their advantage. I mean, again, we talked about them being kind of ahead of their time. And I think this ability sort of makes them, you know, very modern too. They, they a lot of times use male narrators, male pseudonyms, or they just wrote anonymously um, to get their work published. Um, so you know this sort of covered up their status as this you know woman writer. Um, but it also causes problems because we may never know just how many women were writing these stories uh, because so many were written anonymously or had male names attached to the stories. And I guess another reason maybe why women tended to not be as recognized as male writers is the fact that they wrote about some, and we talked about this too, some fairly sensitive stuff, you know, for the time period. Uh, They didn't shy away from controversial issues. Uh, They wrote about revenge and crime and domestic abuse. They frequently write about abused children, which, you know, is a touchy subject, but that's not something that men usually talk about. Uh, But women write about that quite a bit. 
we talked about, you know, Riddell, um, her walnut tree house tells the story of this, this boy neglected by his uncle who, and this boy haunts the house until he's reunited with his, his sister. We have GM Robbins, Gertrude Minnie, again, another initial, see, we wouldn't have known, you know, if that was a woman or not. Um, but she wrote a story about this woman who, um, has to take her children to a, a, you know, leave their house, rent a house because they have these financial difficulties, um, after struggling to pay debts. And so it's just like, you know, these social topics are just added on and on to these stories in a lot of ways. And then one of my favorites is Ellen Glasgow. She was actually an American writer. Um, her story, The Shadowy Third, I don't know if you've read that one before, but that is a great story because it, it features this ghost of a little girl who gets revenge for herself and her mother, um, who dies shortly after being condemned to a mental asylum by this awful scheming husband that's the girl's stepfather. Um, so, I mean, these stories are really, you know, really not holding anything back. And I think, again, you know, maybe they were a little bit too modern, you know, for the time period. Well, I know in this book, obviously, you focus on women's ghost literature. And I just love the way that all the examples you give show that they're actually dealing with direct social political commentary, but in a, in an indirect way, because they appreciate that women of that time aren't going to be listened to if they write pamphlets or if they publish articles in newspapers. But you talked earlier about um, ghosts being... Um, transition i think or was that just <laughs> was that just me re- reading through my notes but ghosts are a point of transition from life to death you're stepping over a boundary and one of the things that women get when they go over that boundary is they go from being voiceless in the real world and in reality to having power over men as you explore to you know in great depths to your books and also power over the reader because the ghosts are able to talk about things that an actual female either within a book or within a, a book or a short story or in real life would just be condemned for doing but because they're ghosts it's acceptable yeah i mean and they they do it in such a way you know with their stories their stories you know are entertaining and they they do it in a way that's not you know preachy you know or anything like that too didactic it's just they can balance that out you know it's, it's hard enough to write a good ghost story and then to add the social element it just amazes me that they're able to do that so well Absolutely. And I mean, I just love the female revenant section. Your very first chapter is my favourite because there's just so much even in the language and the way they talk about um, using imagery of tides going backwards and forwards to show inconstancy and things like that. And it's just there's so much within there that you wouldn't consciously pick up on as you read it. But subconsciously, you're going, actually, yeah, that was created in my mind. Yeah. I, I mean... Your book is divided into four chapters and I apologise to any listeners if they hear rustling because I have eight pages of notes on it, three pages of condensed notes and two pages of questions because there's just so much crammed in there, so much knowledge and so many examples. Um, It's just brilliant. But um, the key four chapters, they are female revenants and the beginnings of women's ghost literature, ghosty lovers and transgressive supernatural sexualities, uncomfortable houses as spectres of capital, and then some stories about the British Empire. So I wanted to ask you a few questions relating to each chapter because they're they're very distinctive. So firstly, look at my favourite, Female Revenants. Um, these stories provide a significant departure from previous Gothic writing. Uh, previously, Gothic was generally a heroine being pursued or oppressed by a strong male figure. There's usually some castles involved, possibly some moorlands. Um, so how do female Gothic ballads and the revenants within them differ from what has gone before? 
there's not as much fainting, which I'm ready. <laughs> 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 no, but um, there, yeah, there really is less. But um, the ghost is this, you know, type of vengeful revenant, and I just love this idea of just the revenant. You know, this idea, just the word itself of coming back um, in this way, and just representing. You know, and in most cases, uh, you'll have to remind me, I think most of the cases, the revenants were women, right? I think, you know, most of the examples I had. So, you know, this woman who comes back as this revenant represents these hidden secrets and, you know, regret, but then also sort of reflects the, the guilt back usually, you know, onto a man who has done something terrible to them. Um, so, you know, I just I think this idea of revenant is so useful uh, when we talk about women's writing. And often uh, women will use female ghosts to relate suffering. Again, like you said, that it's, it's like this transition, right? It's experienced in both the woman's life, but then I don't there's just something powerful and troubling about you know, reading these, especially these ballads and realizing that the suffering sort of continue, you know, death is not the end of suffering in a lot of cases that it continues in the afterlife. Uh, so these women return from their graves, you know, to write some wrong done to them um, in a lot of cases. And the appearance of the ghost and the revenge that it takes is, is then connected to some sort of personal trauma and the revealing of some dark past, you know, some emotional disappointment, abandonment, uh, you know, maybe abuse in some cases or even, you know, murder. So I just think, again, like you said, that transition, it's, it's that connection between the life and the afterlife. And in the afterlife, these women gain voices, like you said, too, that they did not have when they were living. Absolutely. And each revenant that you've that you make an example of in the book um in some way is is very different and death has empowered them so in the perjured nun the nun as you rightly describe is pretty much the male hero because it carries out the act of revenge and you know is is the hero even though it's both the the character is both dead and female and a nun (laughs) it's not not your traditional (laughs) gothic hero and in the penitence confession you talk about how um, the ghost restricts his movement on the bridge when in her death was actually him strangling and restricting her and what she couldn't do in life she can now do um, as a ghost um, and I thought the two ones that really captured my imagination were the skeleton priest where um, the girl being warned because there's quite often a girl being warned as well because the whole point mm-hmm. of ghosts is to have a, a message to pass on and the the girl being warned in this is called Irene and she treats the revenant with scorn uh, even though the Revenant is really sympathetic to her desires, I know you want to go meet this man, I know you're really passionately in love with him. Uh, and she turns up to meet Orlando, and uh, not only does he mock her for the desires that she had, but ends up killing her as well. And it's like, well, yeah. you didn't listen to the ghost. <laughs> it clearly should have done. And trust me, I've been there, girl. Yeah. <laughs> but the one I thought really overstepped boundaries... Um, in a good way, was uh, the Ballad of Sir Rupert, where you've got a female revenant in control of a battlefield. And I just thought that was so powerful because, as you explain, not only is she female, but she is very definitely Catholic and she is very definitely on men's territory, which is something that many men would just freak out about, (laughs) as indeed does Sir Rupert. And, you know, he ends up meeting his satisfactorily sticky end. Mm -hmm. But... It's just the way that she goes on and she does take life, but she does it in order to um, prevent suffering and to help people. But you've got this idea, I forget who um, who said it in here, in your book, you did have a very good quote, that 
women are seen either as um, angelic spirits or as demons and mm. never really in between. <laughs> you can't con- contemplate that there's this woman who is a spirit but might be for good. It just It's like, no, it must be a demon or an angel. It's, it's, it's this grey area that they do so fantastically well at ex- examining. Right. And I think these stories sort of lay the groundwork for, you know, you know, making people realize that it doesn't have to be one or the other, you know, that women are complicated. They can have, you know, both good and bad. So I think, you know, these are the first glimpses we get of more just, you know, whether supernatural or not, you know, sort of complex women characters, which is great. And I mean, you kind of stick with the idea of ghosts in the second chapter, where you move on to consider ghostly lovers and transgressive supernatural sexualities. So ghosts go from being sort of a warning and talking about maybe gender issues to become a way for women to talk about their repressed desires. And the supernatural stories that you you talk about have an awful lot of subtext in them. And the ghosts or the demons in these stories are sort of part of the protagonist or reflect the opposite to the protagonist and they're both attractive and repulsive at the same time. I mean, the best example you gave was The Poor Claire by Elizabeth Gaskell. Um, I mean, just what kind of message do you think these characters put across to their readers who are used to, like you say, the fainting women (laughs) and things like that? Yeah, and this is something you mentioned, Elizabeth Gaskell for, you know, Cranford and North and South and, you know, Mary Barton and, you know, excellent. I love her her novels. But, you know, again, and this is something I want to talk about return to Laird when we come to the um, I think like maybe the Empire works about Empire. But she usually, you know, put her more maybe some outwardly subversive stuff in that short fiction. So, you know, you have the old nurse's story and the poor Claire. And I wish more people would read those stories by her because they're just, they're amazing. But um, I think one of the, maybe the most important things is that women in these kinds of stories are, are allowed to be monstrous. I guess if I could put it that way, Um, you know, they can be just as deadly and dangerous as, as male villains. Um, Uh, And I think this gives them a unique power, like, you know, again, both inside and outside the narrative for what they stand for. Um, So when these these women, you know, like Gaskell um, wrote about femme fatales and, you know, quote unquote, monstrous, transgressive women, they're imagining a type of woman that breaks this traditional mold of how a woman should look um, or speak or act. So even if the portrait is unflattering there are you know so many possibilities for women's freedom in this story even if it's not maybe not always fully realized um there it's still there you know we're, we're recognizing a possibility um so i mean these depictions again i think they were really ahead of their time i keep saying that but um if we consider you know the ongoing debates today about how powerful women are portrayed uh, you know, how women are often criticized if they choose a career over family or power issues between women and men. Um, you know, that that transgressive uh, character in these supernatural stories is a way of beginning to, again, recognize the complexity there that it's, you know, women are not just this, you know, angel in the house like they're supposed to be. I mean, if we're talking about femme fatales, I think the Vernon Lee stories you quoted, which were, I'm going to say this terribly now, is it Amour Dieu? Is that right? Yeah, and that's w- right. That's and, Win- <laughs> and Winthrop's Adventure, both about um, men looking into the past. Um, in one case, um, it's looking into Madeira. In the other case, it's uh, Rinaldi, who's a murdered castrati. And they both kind of 
they look at the past and they romanticize it in a way you wouldn't necessarily expect of men and actually if you're reading between the lines um these women or castrati i suppose because you um, mentioned have only kind of deals with fluid sexualities but these feminized people um whether they're castrati or women are very vicious and very mean and there's there's no sentimentality there and it's not like in the um ballads where they have a, a point or a meaning you know and they want to put across a warning they just want to destroy and i thought that was very very different and it reminded me a little bit talking about modern um about the excellent alison littlewood and her um stories the crow garden and the hidden people which were both novels written from the point of view of men but mm-hmm. really dealt with issues female issues and struggles that women were going through but through the point of view of a man and I kind of got the same from the quotes that you put in your book from Vernon Lee's two stories that it was this idea of yes it's told from a male point of view but actually if you're a woman reading between the lines there's a lot to take away from those there really is yes and if going talk about um sexuality as well the one that I really enjoyed reading about was um Paul Clare um mainly because it was called Lucy which is one of my names (laughs) um but you know, it's again, the narrator is a guy and he's looking at Lucy and she's got this kind of curse put on her that has a split personality. You've got the lovely angelic little Lucy and then her sort of monstrous side, which he describes as being animalistic and refers to it as it. But this this other side has a, a fantastic freedom with no social limitations on it. Um, and it reminded me of the, um, the episode we did recently with Tiffany Angus, um, who was talking about sort of separating out all the different parts of, of women and this this whole idea of dividing yourself and not being able to connect and you mentioned how in the end Lucy is saved uh, people can't see air quotes when I do that but she is saved <laughs> but she emerges split and divided and the only way the curse can be lifted is if the grandmother Bridget joins the poor Claire's which is where the, the title comes from and she gives up her voice in order to lift this curse and she goes from being the cold home witch to a poor Claire she goes from the definitive article to the indefinite article she's just lost among the masses and there's so much power in that idea that your repressed sexuality is to be something monstrous um and you know he goes on about poor lucy and yet at the same time he's also quite attracted by it and then the only person who can actually save her is her grandmother and the only way she can do that is to lose her identity it's just there's so much in this story to mess with your mind it's amazing yeah it's like gaskell you know she went you know, far enough. And then she was like, well, you know, let's not give everyone everything. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the end, that ending does sort of bother me because of the fact that, you know, the grandmother does have to give up this incredible power, you know, and at the time, you know, witches had incredible power in the community um, and they were looked to, you know, to solve problems and give advice and, and things like that. And she has to give that up. And that's what, you know, I think that that bothers me at the end of that story. But, you know, I don't know if Gaskell was sort of second guessing, you know, how much can I get away with here in the story? I have to I can't, you know, have both these women, you know, have all their power at the end. Something has to be sacrificed, um, you know, to to be okay. Maybe she had a male beta reader who went, yeah, no, you can't do that, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of times and I don't know, I don't I can't say for sure if this was um, I'm blanking on it. Um, 
but she did um, have quite a few debates with Charles Dickens when she was um, contributing to, I'm not sure if it was all year round, I think it was all year round and not household words, but I'm not, I'm not sure on that one, but uh, you know, she would put stories and he would change them and she a lot of times wouldn't back down. So I would have liked to have kind of been in the room or been, you know, reading those letters as that was going back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) That does indeed sound fascinating. No, The Haunted House is one of the most recognisable tropes within horror fiction. Um, But in your chapter on uncomfortable houses and spectres of capital, you describe how women used haunted houses as a means to put across social messages, such as anxieties about class, gender and economics. So how do you take something as standard, well, which is standard now, as the haunted house trope and put all these subtexts in it? Yeah, I don't. The haunted house to me, um, you know, is one of the most interesting, like kind of like sub sub tropes within the gothic. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's what everyone recognizes, but it's one of the main areas where these women can, I think, disrupt the notion of the safe space of the domestic home, um, and they really complicate this idea of the home as a site of peace and tranquility. Um, you know, it, it, it often wasn't, you know, for many women in the 19th century and, you know, still isn't today. So, you know, behind the walls of this seemingly perfect house, you know, women are being abused and beaten, you know, are told what they can and can't do or told how they can and can't spend money. Um, you know, oftentimes the money that they earn, you know, so these stories really do bring women into the conversation of, again, you know, topics about you know, quote, male topics, right? Topics from money and inheritance and property management, you know, and, um, and things like that. And again, I think it's that beginning, that conversation where, um, especially Charlotte Riddell, you know, focuses on this to say, uh, you know, women can talk about this and we can have an understanding. And she actually worked the financial into a lot of her novels as well. Yeah, one thing I really liked about this, we, I mean, we talk about this more when we come to the Empire stories, but within the haunted house, as you were saying, you've kind of got this idea of the angel in the house that suddenly becomes the ghost in the house. Um, and as you quote Margaret Ann Doody is saying, the ghosts in these stories make private sufferings very public, so something that perhaps wouldn't necessarily be seen um, comes to be seen. And I think my favourite one was Margaret Oliphant's The Open Door, which deals with Colonel Mortimer investigating ghostly cries which are sickening his own child. And he's a bit of a snob, really, and he has to go and speak to the servants. And the servants at first clam up, and he thinks it's because they're you know, not being helpful or they're afraid of ghosts, but actually they're afraid of ridicule by the, the upper classes, which actually pans out because Colonel Mortimer doesn't have a very high opinion of him. Um, and he manages to save the ghost and his own son by understanding the lower classes and getting empathy um, for the working classes that he'd never had before. And I thought this was a really good social message for the time. Um, And you might be able to help me out. um, The other one, I think it was the Walnut Tree House, where the new owner doesn't act rich. Um, This is one by Charlotte Riddell. And he needs to interact again with the lower classes to solve the ghost mystery. And he ends up going randomly to speak to the butcher. And he finds out that the previous owners didn't buy the best cuts of meat and that was socially irresponsible because if you are rich you should buy the most expensive cuts of meats because if you buy the cheap ones you're preventing the lower classes from buying what they can afford because they can't afford the rich ones and also you are directly impacting on the income of the butcher who relies on you buying the expensive stuff so that he can you know sell cheaper stuff as well and I thought this was just 
amazing that they'd got this one conversation and managed to sort of turn around the whole idea and put forward this idea that it's not having money that's important necessarily it's using that money responsibly right and i think a lot of the the stories that deal with you know people's decisions around money it's connected somehow to you know the characterization of is that a good person or a bad person like you said depending on how they choose to spend the wealth that they have and it's um uh is it the last house in Vauxhall uh walk um the other riddle riddle story where the man comes in and sees the miserly woman. And again, she's not doing what she needs to do with her money. She's hoarding it. So that makes her a you know, bad person. Absolutely. And I, I wish I could remember who it was um, within the book that you quoted, who says that um, women's fiction of this time, sort of haunted house fiction, is what was the phrase? Unremittingly economic. <laughs> but it kind of is, because that was so important for, for young ladies at that time. And I remember reading one of the stories in Johnny's book, A Suggestion of Ghosts, which really stayed with me. And it was about two young girls who um, lived a fantastic life, you know, and then were disinherited, um, lost out their... Um, the last male relative dies, so it passes on to another branch of the family, and they try to be milliners, and they don't do very well. And it, it was, it was really effective to me as a woman who kind of goes, well, you know, this is what women did. They did rely on men, and if the men squandered the money or didn't make proper wills in place and didn't make trusts and things like that, then they wouldn't have money, and they would be reduced to these these terrible things. And I know that you quoted Rosemary Jackson, Jackson saying that mm. men in this area would investigate horror for its own sake and the whole point of the haunted house be must get out their vengeful spirits. Whereas women use it to kind of extend an idea of what it is to be human and what it is to be a responsible member of society, which is completely different to some of the others who are just out there for shocks and scares. Right. And that's what, again, I think that's what makes these stories so interesting is that they're grounded, they're almost always grounded in the real in some way. And to me, that's what makes them so important. You know, these social messages come through because of that. Again, this was going to be a question, but I think we've already answered it. Yeah, these ghost stories got very mixed receptions, um, particularly Charlotte Riddell. Someone said that the ghost stories raise on detritus to be thrilling and Riddell's ghosts were too busy promoting happiness, yeah. which differed massively from haunted house stories written by men. Um, and did I remember somewhere reading that um, there were actually... Whereas before the women were badly reviewed for not having happy endings, now when it comes to the haunted house, they're saying, well, actually, they're too busy making happy endings and not actually focusing on the terror of the whole thing. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that when you said that we're talking about happy endings, but the um, Walnut Tree House, I mean, the little boy is is dead, but he he gets reunited with his sister. um, And then she, does she end up marrying the, I don't know my own word. (laughs) Mary's right the the main guy you know at the end and then um uh, elephant story the open door sort of has a happy ending there as well um so you know I don't know maybe there are you know some good in that case um you know happy endings but you, you mentioned about you know what how women write versus you know these types of stories than how how men write but I feel I don't know I feel like you get more background in haunted house stories by women you know, most of the time, you know, yes, they're they're very much concerned with, with money and property and inheritance. And I don't know, to be truthful, I think at times Riddell especially maybe gets a little too bogged down in those topics. But ultimately, I think that's one of the more interesting 
points is how she depicts, like we talked about those women, what do they do with the, the finances that they have? Um, many of her, her female ghosts are sort of monstrous as well. Um, again, when it comes to their attitude towards money, they, you know, they scheme, they hoard money. Um, they try to steal wills to get inheritance and stuff like that, but uh, they take matters into their own hands. Um, you know, they command a lot of power, um, in those narratives and they, they cause men a lot of fear. Um, I'm thinking it's not in the book, but, uh, Riddell also wrote a story called the open door. Um, and a lot of the themes that I'm thinking of really appear, appear really nicely in that story. Um, so if you like that one, I'd recommend having a look at, at her open door story. Um, but in stories written by men, you don't usually have as much characterization and the ghost usually doesn't have this defined backstory or reason, you know, we talk about reason for being, um, I know, for instance, Algernon Blackwood's The Empty House, um, comes to mind it's a great haunted house story you know i love it but we don't get a lot of good backstory behind the haunting we, we know a little bit about what happens but not all so i don't know maybe this is just my preference as a reader but i want more backstory you know i want to know about motives and history i don't need to have every question answered but i like to know why the ghost is there you know in the first place and I don't know, I think this is maybe a particular strength of women's ghost stories. You know, we've, we've said this, but they're scary because they are grounded in the real. You know, abuse, poverty, gender inequality, all this stuff exists. So, you know, having the ghosts represent these ongoing problems, this idea of just being haunted is such an effective way to relay these social messages to readers. Like you said, if you had someone reading this, where else are they going to get financial theory? Absolutely. <laughs> around the wealth you know so you're entertaining them but you're also teaching them about the world they live in and I mean that's a perfect way to go into your final analytical chapter which is devoted to women's stories about the British Empire and as I said earlier if you think about imperialistic stories you think of um, Rudyard Kipling jump straight into your mind but female writers at this time were offering up some very valuable critiques of their own weren't they they really were um, and again we don't give women enough credit for being a part of the empire and, and traveling and having firsthand experiences in many of these colonial regions. I discussed Bithia Mary Croker in the book, in that chapter, and she was the wife of a British Army officer, spent many years living in India. Uh, she published over 40 novels, um, I think six collections of stories. Her novel... I think it was like in the 19-teens, The Road to Mandalay was turned into a film. But all we keep hearing about, you know, when it comes to Anglo-Indian fiction is, like you said, Kipling, Kipling, Kipling. <laughs> uh, we have such tunnel vision that we don't get the, nearly the whole picture. So, I mean, I teach Kipling. Um, you know, his place within British literature is undeniable. But, you know, can we please talk about other people? Um, so, I don't This is a little bit of a, a tangent. Sorry about this. But I think maybe one of the reasons that it's taken so long for readers to rediscover women like Croker. And another of my favorite is her contemporary, Alice Perrin. Um, and Maul Diver and Sarah Jeanette Duncan. Um, is the bad reputation of romance, and we could go on and on about that. But And also, I think there's this tendency to prioritize long fiction over short fiction. So, you know, these women wrote many, many Anglo-Indian romance novels, 
And they are often formulaic, but they also have some pretty serious social commentary if we look close enough. But critics, again, they only focus on these women as quote-unquote lady romancers, and I absolutely hate that term, but that's what people call them. And then a lot of times their short fiction is disregarded. And it's in those short fiction where... um, you know, they often tend to explore the supernatural in their short fiction, and it's so much more subversive than their longer fiction. But again, the short story is consistently, I think, overlooked in favor of the novel. So you're only getting half the picture when it comes to the literary output of these women. Yeah, I mean, you talk about um, Ellen Wood in it as well, and A Mysterious Visitor. And you've got this idea of crisis apparitions where, um, quite familiar to ghost hunters everywhere, the a loved one appears at the point of their death when they die far away, and that's what happens in here. Um, and Louisa sees her husband at the exact moment that he dies, and nobody believes her, and she's fixated on this really ghostly event. But in order to find out the truth, there are some really vivid and disturbing facts revealed to the British public about what exactly is going on in the British Empire and why this person was killed. Right. I mean, she again, you know, she is not afraid to write these graphic descriptions. Um, I think maybe some of it was, you know, being taken in by a lot of the um, sometimes, you know, well, maybe a lot of times false reports coming in after uh, the Indian Rebellion in 1857. Um, You know, a lot of people that were not there were giving, you know, so-called eyewitness accounts. But, um, you know, just her, the fact, like you said, that she takes on that topic and publishes a story about it, and like you said, not really holding anything back, um, is again, you know, telling of how she's willing to do that and put it again into the narrative where, in particular, like you said, a woman has to think about that type of thing. It's not shelter the woman, it's she has to know about it. You talked about Croker being um, the wife of a British officer. And you sort of talk about two stories, um, Tillette and the Dak Bungalow. Uh, and I must admit, this idea of a bungalow is just, to me, as a, a modern girl, it, it's not scary at all. It's a bungalow. It's where, you know, little old people pot around and, and sort of grow chrysanthemums and things. But it was very different in India. Um, and she talks about the veranda being a very crucial liminal place because that's where the British officers met with Indian petitioners. So you had this kind of little microcosm of Britain inside and then the whole wild Indian outside. And then you had this little place where the kind of the two of them came into contact. And I really like the fact that she focused on houses and what is seen, I suppose, as the woman's place. So women in that time couldn't comment on military achievements or failures or anything like that but they could comment on life within it and what happens in the house and when what happens in the house is a violent death they are able to comment on that and I just thought that was a wonderful placement and clearly comes from Croker's background of living within this environment yeah and again women don't need to be sheltered they need to you know know about you know the terrible things that are going on in order for this you know empire to continue and I was also interested that they don't actually leave their own sex out of the criticism as well, because you talk about the Memsabs, who are tyrannical, um, they're huge snobs, they don't learn the language, they're happy in their ignorance. And the advice they give and the roles they take within these stories can be just as dangerous as any of the other sort of supernatural elements. Right. It almost reminds me of, um, what is it, uh, the open door uh, Mortimer, Colonel Mortimer, yes. he needs 
taken down a peg. And I think these <laughs> are the same way. Like, okay, you, you're so confident, you know, but really you need to get out there and see some stuff that's troubling and then you won't be so confident, you know. Absolutely. And these the experiences that the women have in Croker and Wood stories don't necessarily reform them. But like you say, it does give them a new understanding of colonialism that is denied to these other characters, these Memsov characters and these men who don't believe them. And in the same way, gives it to the reader as well so that they understand exactly what is going on. Yeah, I mean, most of these, you know, readers were probably women. So, you know, it, it kind of goes down to, like, you know, the women in the stories learn about these things. And then the readers of the stories themselves are learning about these things that they may not get, you know, other places, you know, talk, listening to conversation, um, you know, sitting in the, you know, parlor or wherever, you know, reading it in the newspaper. So, you know, it's fiction, but it also serves a social purpose. You state in your book that women were some of the first authors to deal with colonialism, but they're one of the last to have their writings recognised as worthy critiques of the time. So do you think we've addressed that now and perhaps recognise the importance of these stories more today? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to do a shameless plug here, but that's why I had to write another book. <laughs> so, um, no, when I was writing the, um, the last chapter on imperialism for women's ghost literature, I really began to realize, you know, what an untapped topic this really was. Um, so in my most recent one, um, I, I, I focus on women's colonial Gothic writing uh, from like 1850 to 1930. And I ended up with 10 chapters. And it's all, again, women who people, they, they probably, most readers probably don't know about. Um, so I, I start in, in can like, again, it just opened that one chapter just opened up this world of possibilities again. So I start in Canada with Susanna Moody and Isabella Valency Crawford, uh, which was a discovery for me. I, I did not know about Crawford. Um, and then I go to the Caribbean, uh, with Florence Marriott's The Blood of the Vampire, which talks about, um, you know, the troubles of being biracial in the empire, um, psychic vampires are there. Um, I talk about Mary Kingsley, who almost made it into the first book, but I had to cut that at the last minute. So I was, I've, I've just been saving that. So I, I talk about her time in West Africa. Um, Marjorie Lawrence, again, I mentioned her earlier. I love her work. Um, and then I, I moved to Australia and talk about Mary Fortune and Barbara Bainton. Um, and then I finished in New Zealand with uh, Catherine Mansfield. So, uh, so there is there is still an incredible void, especially not just looking at women's Gothic, but just women's place in empire during that time. So I hope that this starts to sort of fill that um, that void, that understanding, that um, you know, lack of understanding about women's place in empire, and maybe starts to give women credit for actually being engaged with issues surrounding, you know, the problems of imperialism and disrupting, you know, sort of this grand narrative that was written by men at this time, which, you know, tends to not challenge the imperialist mindset as much as it could. Uh, and, I don't know, in many ways, maybe actually supports, you know, imperialist policies a lot of the time. I mean, we've talked an awful lot about the 19th century and, and ghost literature within that. But towards the end of the book, you do sort of venture a, a little bit more modern. Um, so you provide a comment from Richard Dalby from 1988 that in the past 150 years, Britain has led the way in the classic ghost story and that 50% of that output is from female writers. 
Then you mentioned that Jessica Amanda Samuelson in 1989 said that as much as 70% of that output was female. So I just wondered, firstly, do you think that Britain still leads the way in this genre? And do you think that the balance of 50-50 is still the same in this area? Well, I'm, I'm partial because I focus on British women, you know, in my most of my reading and research. But, you know, there are many outstanding women from America who were writing ghost stories in the 19th century. So, I mean, we can't forget about Edith Wharton, again, you know, known for being a novelist, but wrote some really great ghost stories. Um, Gertrude Atherton, uh, Elizabeth Stewart Phelps, who wrote one of my favorite stories of all time, Since I Died, which is told from the ghost point of view. It's just an absolutely beautifully written story. I really recommend it. It's very short. Um, but then in the 20th century, you know, we have people like Shirley Jackson and, you know, the haunting of Hill house, which everyone loves. Um, and I think, you know, the tradition definitely continues today. We have, you know, Susan Hill's novels and stories, you know, the woman in black, right. That, you know, is still on stage in London, right. It's like the second longest running one after the mousetrap, I think. And the movie, you know, she's incredibly popular, um, Sarah Waters, right, The Little Stranger, which is being turned into a film. I'm excited about that. Um, and Helen Oyemi, uh, The Icarus Girl and White is for Witching, and people are comparing her to Shirley Jackson. And we have Laura Purcell's The Silent Companions, which I have to admit I haven't read yet, but that's getting some really good reviews, and it's it's on my short list <laughs> for summer reading. But, you know, I think those getting back to those statistics, they're important. I wanted to include them because they do give a good sense. Uh, but again, with so many women writing anonymously, like I said earlier, using male pseudonyms, we have to kind of take those numbers with a grain of salt and say, you know, it's probably much higher than that, you know. Um, I mean, you've made a, a lot of comments about the novels there. As a reader of short fiction, things like Black Static um, and Ellen Datlow's Best New Horror and things like that. Um mm and sorry Ellen Dutton and Best New Horror uh, there are there are an awful lot of women in there and again there are more people like Alison Littlewood um, and people like that who were being seen more and more regularly in these things uh, you also mentioned that there were a flood of women's ghost stories anthologies in the 1960s and 1980s and I just wondered if you could provide some insight on what was proving popular in those days I mean was it old stuff or was it mainly new works or a mixture of the two um, I focused, you know, mainly on the, you know, the ones that I was looking at were mainly 19th century stories that were being republished. Um, but I think that this this rediscovery was part of a, a larger wave of feminism during those decades and women writers reclaiming a literary tradition that women, they didn't just contribute to, but they were instrumental, you know, in creating and shaping and, I also think this the social commentary and gender issues that were in these stories really appealed to a female readership during this time. You know, you had strong female characters, you know, at the center of many of these uh, supernatural tales. Um, and I think, you know, 19th century women authors were integral in helping to shape the concept of, you know, an independent female leading character. So I think women reading these 19th century, early 20th century stories towards the end of the 20th century and still, you know, reading them today can find some fairly modern women, you know, in both the authors, um, if we look at their biographies and their writing careers and in, you know, the stories themselves and the characters that 
um, like we said, don't always have to be living. They can be dead characters too that, that assume this power. Now, for anybody who's been um, intrigued by this conversation, I would highly, highly recommend getting a copy of Melissa's book because it was just, it was just amazing. And it is well balanced with good quotes and stories and good analysis. It's quite short for a, a you know, nonfiction piece. It, you know, I got through it really quickly, uh, despite all the notes I took. And I, I went away and I mean, on my computer now, I still have tabs open with all the, um, uh, with all the different ballads that I'm going to go and print off and, and read. Um, but obviously, as we've been going along, we've been talking about the book and other books that are out there. So I just wanted to perhaps consolidate and say what books are there out there for people who have been interested in this conversation and want to read some of the source material, but also want to read some more books out there. Um, I mean, I know I mentioned A Suggestion of Ghosts. Again, excellent um, by Johnny Mays. And I'd highly recommend anybody who uh, likes this kind of literature to, to have a read of some undiscovered stories there. But what about you, Melissa? What would you recommend? Yeah, um, so definitely I'll put in a pitch too for Johnny's um, you know, next book. It should be coming out maybe later this summer. So definitely you know, have, be on the lookout for that. Um, one of my favorite series that is now, um, and I feel like I'm echoing what I say in the conclusion to the book, but it's sadly out of print, but you can find uh, really good cheap copies on almost any like secondhand book site. Um, it's called Tales of Mystery and the Supernatural, and it was published by Wordsworth Editions, maybe in the 2000s, not all that long ago. Um, and it's this great series that includes um, collections dedicated to writers like um, Edith Nesbitt. I mentioned Gertrude Atherton, Amelia B. Edwards. Um, I think there's one on May Sinclair. Um, D.K. Broster, Marjorie Bowen, and there, there's a few others. Um, so you can definitely find copies of, of those, and that's something I'd recommend. And, you know, the 19th century stories are out of copyright. So um, even sites like Gutenberg or archive.org, um, even the British Library has some free copies available online. So, you know, definitely check out there. Um, there's also a new collection um, that I, I have it on my list to get. It's called The White Lady, um, Supernatural Tales by German Women Writers in the Romantic Era. So um, if you like that chapter on the romantic ballads, that might be one to check out. Um, and I think that's just been recently published. So I think the stories are out there for people to check out, but the trick is knowing who to look for, if that makes sense. So I hope, you know, myself and others who are, are talking about these women authors are hopefully providing today's readers with the names of these women who were, you know, incredibly popular in their day and who we've just, it seems sort of overly simplified, but we've just forgotten them. Um, so I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of is, is to be bringing these amazing writers back into the conversation, you know, regarding gothic and supernatural fiction. And you have certainly uncovered some real gems in, in there, and I look forward to reading them in full when I can track them down on Gutenberg. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, Melissa. It's been great to have you. I think the best way to end is probably with your own words at the conclusion of your book, which shows us that we can still learn a lot about the past from these writers. 19th century ghost literature by women writers adds yet another dimension to the female gothic by offering texts that allow the genre to be broadened and reassessed. In this way, the female gothic keeps returning and is, fittingly, its own revenant. Thank you for joining us on Breaking the Glass Slipper. 